Hi, I'm Michael Hawk, and welcome to Nature's Archive Podcast, where I interview some of the most interesting and creative people on the forefront of conservation, ecology, and wildlife restoration. If you have a fascination with the natural world or would like to learn how you too can make a difference, regardless of your current circumstances, this podcast is for you. My promise to you is that you'll not only learn what my guests have accomplished, but also how and why. And if you come along for this journey, I also promise that you'll learn plenty of fascinating things about the nature that surrounds us all. So give it a listen. And if you truly care about the environment and enjoy what you heard, please take a moment to subscribe, leave feedback on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and share the episode with a friend. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to my first in-between-isode. Or maybe it's an intermediate-isode. Fact is, I'm still not quite settled on what to call these short episodes. I'm going to release a few of these in between my normal interview episodes. The first thing I usually do when I don't quite have the right word is consult a thesaurus. So here's a few synonyms that maybe I can call these episodes. Mediocre-sode, inconclusive-sode, middling-sode, unremarkable-sode. Well, maybe the thesaurus isn't quite helping me here, and I better stop before I find some way to rationalize meteorocosode. Anyway, today I'm going to tell you a little bit about a fun project I've started. It's really been eye-opening and surprisingly easy to do. As you know, normally I interview inspiring people who have charted some sort of unique course to make an impact in conservation or environmental education. And today, with the challenges faced in our country and around the world, sometimes it feels like conservation and environmental education need to take a back seat. Of course, just like how we need to push back on polarized politics, we can realize that there's nuance in our own lives as world. We can tend to both of these needs in varying ways, and adjusting as the conditions warrant. My project allows for this constant adjustment. I've set a goal of photographing 365 animal species in my backyard within 365 days. At the same time, I'm reporting everything I find to iNaturalist. I think this is an ideal project, and I encourage all of you to try to take on something similar. Maybe you choose to identify 100 species in a year, Or maybe you don't have a yard, but you can go to some sort of commons area or nearby city park and see what you can find. Take a can-do attitude and come up with something that gets you outside and connecting with nature. I promise you'll be rewarded, probably in ways that you don't expect. And I have lots of suggestions as to how to make this sort of activity fun for the whole family. Today I'm going to tell you all about how my project's gone and all the unexpected ways that I've been rewarded. But first, let's back up a little bit and talk about how this idea came to be in the first place. When COVID-19 hit, I had to shelter in place like so many of you. I wanted to ensure that I kept in touch with nature, though. I decided to start a practice of finding new animals in my backyard. It happened to be migration season for birds. It was a great time to spot Allens and Rufus hummingbirds in my yard, and that was the hook that really made me stick with it. After a few days of this, I decided to create a group on Facebook, and I invited a bunch of my friends to join. It was called Backyard Wildlife for the COVID Confined. Pretty quickly, with almost zero effort, I had 100 participants. They ranged in locations from Alaska to New York, Arizona to Australia, and much more. The sightings that people had all across the United States and across the world were exciting to see. It helped provide more energy to all of us, and I think everybody has learned a little bit throughout this endeavor. The group is still going strong, and in fact, if you want to participate in this, just search for Backyard Wildlife in Facebook groups. I'll link to it in the show notes at podcast.naturesarchive.com. So specific to my yard, it's in San Jose, California. It's only about 6,000 square feet, or 560 square meters. One advantage I do have, despite a relatively small property, is I'm on the edge of town, and there's a very large county park just about a half mile away. I also have a nearby neighbor that maintains a very large koi pond. He's had it for years, and this is another habitat that's close by and provides more diversity. This gives me plenty of nearby microhabitats. Starting out, I had no idea if 365 species was even possible. 
I did some sort of back of the envelope math and figured I could probably photograph somewhere around 35 bird species. I could off the top of my head think of maybe 10 or so butterfly species that would go through the yard and a few mammals like raccoons and squirrels. I'd seen a few lizards over the years and uh, a salamander as well. But even if I add all that up, it's only about 50 species. So I'm still short by 300 or more. I knew I need to find lots of arthropods. The key was just getting started though. The Bay Area is blessed with a Mediterranean climate, so we have some trees and flowers blooming nearly all year. That means that most of the year there's something to find. Even then, March can be a little bit chilly, so I got off to a bit of a slow start. My first lesson was it takes a while to change your frame of mind and release your subconscious attentional filters. I work at home, I stare at a computer screen, and I participate in a lot of meetings. Going outside over a lunch break, it would often take me 10 minutes or more before I'd really start to notice the little things, like aphids on a milkweed, or tiny spiders on the underside of leaves. It was surprising how long it would take for me to start to see things, but once I would start to see them, they were everywhere. Over time, I've been able to make this transition much faster, but it still takes a few minutes, and it really takes a certain mindset to start seeing. I usually have to sit down somewhere and just look at a bush or at a perennial, and things start popping out. Since I decided to use iNaturalist for everything I found, I quickly learned my second lesson. There is a lot that I don't know. Or perhaps more accurately, I didn't know what I didn't know. Those gray squirrels that I had assumed were western gray squirrels in my backyard? No, they're actually eastern gray squirrels that had been introduced to the area. They've actually pushed out the westerns into the country out of the suburbs. I'd have to learn this lesson over and over as I moved into new areas of my practice. There was a lot that I didn't know. I also pretty quickly learned to zero in on the native plants in my yard. These were hot spots for insects and birds alike. For example, my California coffee berry is home to multiple spider species and it provides fruit and cover for birds. And the local pollinators just love it. By contrast, my neighbor's oleanders that kind of grow over my fence into my yard, while they're very showy and it looks like it would be interesting to insects, are basically dead zones. I have a reinvigorated appreciation for native plants. In fact, I did a little bit of research and I found that turf grass in the United States takes up about as much land area as the entire state of Florida. And this is a monoculture of grass that's managed with disproportionate amounts of chemicals. Think of all the fertilizers, pesticides, and herbicides that go into grass. Can you imagine the environmental impact if tomorrow we just decided that we were going to turn all of Florida into a monocrop at the expense of everything else? That's pretty much what we're doing with lawns. So if you have a lawn, please consider adding some native plants, reducing your grass coverage, and also reducing your chemical usage. It will actually save you money in the long run. Okay, I'm off my soapbox now, but be warned, I am going to plan a larger episode on this topic in the future. It's very important. By being intentional in my investigation in my yard, I've had some amazing finds and it has grown into a near daily practice for me. This practice is really meditative and it's also restorative. There's so much data out there on the benefits of nature and sunlight and deep observation of wildlife, even if it's as small as a mite or a hoverfly or something that you find just walking around on the ground, it takes you totally into the present and it erases the worries of the day, even if only for a few moments. So let me tell you about some of these amazing findings I've had. A lot of what I talk about really has to be seen to be believed. The show notes have photographs of almost everything I mentioned, if not all the species that I mentioned. And I post a lot of them to my Instagram as well. In fact, I'll post more this week when I launch this episode, so be sure to follow Nature's Archive on Instagram. As a lot of you know, I'm really into photography. I've always enjoyed macro photography, and focusing on insects in my backyard has really brought this back to the forefront. I think my skills improved, and I look forward to you taking a look at some of my pictures and letting me know if you like them. So one of the first discoveries I made early in the season was that those tiny bees that were hovering around my flowers all the time weren't actually bees at all, but rather hoverflies. 
I should have known because they just hover. It's almost like they're able to stand still in the air. Their coloration patterns are delicate and intricate, and the names are equally endearing. These are names like Western Calligrapher or Oblique Stripe Tail, Margined Calligrapher. They really have to be seen to be believed. They're extremely beneficial insects, and I love to have them in my yard. And I just learned that there's a brand new field guide to flower flies. Hoverflies are considered to be a flower fly. This field guide, it's specific to the Northeast United States, but it looks like it'd be really helpful for most naturalists across the U.S. I also discovered a tiny spider that's fascinating called a trash line orb weaver. It's only a few millimeters long. And what it does is it builds a traditional orb weaver web. It's that classic circular web that you might remember from say Charlotte's web. What it will do is as it captures insects, it actually lines them up the carcasses of what it ate. I know that sounds a little bit morbid, but it lines them up and then hides in the middle of this line. It's thought to be a way for it to camouflage and hide from its own predators. You have to see the picture. I was also amazed at the huge quantity of jumping spiders that we have in my yard. There's at least three species, and I think probably four, but there's one I can't quite get an identification on. Jumping spiders are curious creatures with a lot of personality. They're so different from other spiders. They actually have, I don't know, I might call it a cheerful, if not a cute face, and they'll happily walk right up and check you out. They're very curious, and they're fun to watch. Another amazing discovery right in my backyard is at least three leaf miner species. Do you know what a leaf miner is? Well, some gardeners might know what leaf miners are. They're sometimes looked at as pests, but I'd only heard of them in the past in passing. These species go to show you just how diverse life is, even in your backyard. So a leaf miner can be either a moth or a fly, sometimes a sawfly or a beetle. What they do is they'll actually lay their egg on the margin of a leaf, and when the egg hatches, the larva goes between the epidermal layers of the leaf, and it just chews on the innards of the leaf, slowly growing, slowly growing, creating a pathway or a mine through the leaf. And at some point, when it's large enough, it'll chew its way out, and it will turn into its adult form. Coincidentally, I discovered a wonderful webinar by one of the foremost experts on leaf miners, Charlie Iceman. I'll be sure to include a link to it. It was perfect timing for me as I discovered these different leaf miners in the yard. Charlie Iceman also has a wonderful book that I highly recommend. It's called Tracks and Signs of Insects and Other Invertebrates, A Guide to North American Species. It was co-written between Charlie Iceman and Noah Charney. I'll include a link to it as well. This book is an amazing reference, and it tells you about any sign that an insect might leave behind in your yard. Whether it's eggs or egg encasements, cocoons, chrysalis, tracks, trails, galls, leaf mines, droppings, anything else that you might see, you can look it up in this book and get an idea for what it is that's causing it. Just a couple other discoveries amongst the many. By paying attention and being consistent, I discovered a wonderful alligator lizard in my front yard. Alligator lizards aren't that uncommon, but I'd yet to see one in my yard. Usually we just get western fence lizards, which are also interesting, but a little bit smaller and much more common. The alligator lizard, as the name suggests, looks just a bit like an alligator. It's much longer than a lot of the other local lizards. This one was a lot of fun as it walked around in my driveway and hid behind my tires in my car. Check out the pictures for sure on this one. And by getting into the world of the tiny, I noticed some of the smallest flies I'd ever seen. I probably would have overlooked them if I hadn't started this practice. The ones in particular that I saw turned out to be these hyper-colored marigold fruit flies. You really got to check these out. Their eyes are glowing, and when you get a picture of one on an orange marigold flower, it just looks like it's out of this world. So as I record this, I'm 126 days into this journey, and I have 175 species, so I'm almost halfway there. I can still think of quite a few easy species that I just haven't taken the time to photograph yet but I really don't know if I'm gonna be able to make it to 365. I'm not sure, but it's pretty clear at this point that I'm gonna be able to at least keep it interesting.
I've also learned a few tricks that I have up my sleeve that can help me get a few more species. I mentioned before that you can make this a fun activity for kids. There are lots of activities that you can do to actually attract wildlife, or at least pull out the wildlife so you can more easily see it. Let me run through a few of these. Some of these can be done even if you don't own the property. The first is called light trapping. And no, I don't mean those bug zappers that tend to kill beneficial insects more than the ones that are intended. Those things are terrible and you really shouldn't have one. What I mean is passive attraction by hanging a white cloth and shining a bright light on it. A UV light works the best, or sometimes people call those black lights, but you could also use an LED flashlight as well, or really any light for that matter. But the broader spectrum you have and the more UV you have, the better it tends to work. As evening turns into night, you'll be able to attract lots of things, moths, some with spectacular coloring, snake flies, June bugs, click beetles, leaf hoppers, and much more. Just shine the light on the white cloth and wait. You'll be amazed at what nocturnal insect life is out there. Try checking at different times of the night as well. You might find that different things are active as the night goes on. And of course, try at different times of the year. Another fun activity is ant baiting. Now again, I don't mean going to the hardware store and buying a poisonous ant bait. Basically, this is just a method of feeding the ants. All you have to do is make a sugar water mix, four parts water to one part sugar. By the way, that's the same mixture that you would use for attracting hummingbirds in the hummingbird feeder. Cut out some small white squares of paper, maybe three or four inches square. Place the papers in different spots around your yard. Good spots might be in your garden, near a tree, along a sidewalk, perhaps near an old tree stump. And then place a few drips of this sugar water mixture on the paper. By the way, the easiest way to mix the sugar in the water is to heat the water. It makes the sugar dissolve much more readily. After you place these squares of paper in strategic locations in your yard, come back 30 to 60 minutes later and see what you find. By the way, some ants are nocturnal, or they might only be active early in the day, so you might want to try this early in the morning and see what you find. Try placing these at different spots. Some ants may be more likely to associate with specific tree species. In fact, in our area, there's a type of ant called a pavement ant, and as the name suggests, you can really only find it close to pavement, like a sidewalk. So far in our yard, I've only found three or four species of ants, but before I started this, I thought we only had one, the invasive Argentine ant. It was nice to find that there's more diversity in our yard than I realized. An obvious way to attract wildlife to your yard is with bird feeders. Try different seeds and feeder styles. You can start small, but be warned if you catch the bug, it can really become an investment. So for example, goldfinches like Niger or thistle seed, and they really prefer feeders without perches. If you get a feeder with perches, some of the more dominant birds might take over and you might not see as many goldfinches. Some birds prefer steady platforms. Other birds don't mind if the feeder is rocking around in the wind. Some birds only feed on the ground. Woodpeckers, jays, nuthatches, and similar birds will prefer to eat peanuts and suet. And in most cases, you have to tend with starlings or grackles or other birds that can come in and eat up all the food or scare away the other birds just because they're more dominant or aggressive. There are feeders that help prevent this, though, like feeders that have an adjustable dome that you can raise up and down to limit the size of the bird that can access the seed. I've linked to one in the show notes that I've used for years. It can sometimes take a while for the birds to find your feeder. So be patient, keep at it, make sure you keep your feeders clean, and replace the seed if it gets wet. A bird bath can be a great addition to your yard as well. Now it's called a bird bath, but of course it does attract other wildlife. For bonus points, add a fountain or a dripper. The sound of water will be a magnet for all types of birds. It's especially beneficial during migration season. Like I said, with both feeders and baths, you need to clean them on occasion, and be sure to replace the water frequently, especially if you have mosquitoes. You might consider adding a mason bee house. These things really work, and they're great for attracting native bees, most of whom are harmless. They don't sting, 
and they're very beneficial and great pollinators. They're also colorful and just fun to watch. You can make one yourself pretty easily with some wood blocks, a drill, and a few other small supplies. I'll link to a couple plans I found on YouTube as to how to do this, but you could also buy a pre-made one. I already alluded to this next activity earlier, and that's plant native plants and reduce your pesticide use. Milkweeds are great for monarchs. Who doesn't love a monarch? If you're lucky and you get some, they're going to use it as a larval food plant. They'll lay their eggs near them or on them, and when the eggs hatch, the caterpillars that come out will eat the leaves, maybe eat the flowers, and grow and eventually form a chrysalis. You can watch the whole life cycle of the monarch. Most areas of the country have a native milkweed or two. Find a nursery that specializes in native plants and ask about it, and I'm sure they'll have something for you. To do this right with native plants, try to get a variety of big and small. Consider a few perennials, maybe a shrub or two, and a native tree. But if you don't have the space or you don't have the time, at least start with something. Even if you only have a balcony, a few native plantings in a window box can be a lot of fun. If you do own some property, try keeping a brush pile away from your house. A pile of sticks and leaves and maybe some branches can provide home for wrens, lizards, and a lot of other critters. Like I said, you might want to keep it away from your house, though, just so you don't have those critters too close. Keep mulch in your garden to provide insect cover, but also leave some spaces with bare dirt. Some digging bees really prefer the bare dirt. Basically, think of your property as a habitat, and you want to have some variety for different types of things. Now, most importantly, my last tip is to learn about what you're seeing. Many scary-looking insects are actually mimics and highly beneficial. I've seen a number of bee flies or hoverflies or other things that look like they might be a wasp or a bee, and they sound a little bit scary, but it turns out they're actually highly beneficial. A lot of insects just have bad reputations. Could be because of the way they look or the common name that they have or just a, be an urban myth. Learn about what you're seeing, see why they're beneficial, and try to figure out how they fit into your landscape. iNaturalist is a great way to learn about what you're seeing. If you aren't familiar with it, it's a web page, and also there's an app that can run on your phone that allows you to store your observations and provides identification help through an AI interface. So AI, artificial intelligence, is driven by something called machine learning. As more and more people contribute what they're seeing in the form of photographs and descriptions and verifications of the species, the machine learning can use that information to help you when you submit your photo. Additionally, experts will weigh in with help. The AI recommendations aren't perfect, and they also don't provide any confidence intervals. So when the system tells you that what you submitted is a certain species, you need to take an extra step or two to really validate if that's what you really saw. My experience has been that between not knowing what I don't know and the influence from the AI suggestions, and sometimes what it suggests to you has a common name that really seems to match up with what you're seeing, I've made a few misidentifications over the months. I have a lot of tips on how to handle this in a post called A Newbie's Guide to iNaturalist at podcast.naturesarchive.com, but a short summary for you today is that unless you're confident in the species or genus suggestion that the tool gives you, you might want to move up a level or two, say to family or order or even class, and then wait a few days for the experts to chime in. There's a lot of insects that really look the same, and it takes a microscope or even dissection sometimes to tell the difference. Don't worry too much about identifying to species level. Just try to get as close as you can, even if it's as vague as saying life. <laughs> I've submitted a couple of observations where I really didn't know if it was an animal or a plant, and I just called it life, and then eventually the experts came in and helped me zero in on what it was. By following this near daily practice of backyard investigation, I've learned so much more about my local ecology. My mental health is better through this meditative aspect of it, being in the moment with nature so frequently. I've met some wonderfully helpful people through the Facebook groups I started and through iNaturalist. 
It's also, like I said before, triggered a substantial improvement in my photography. I'm looking forward to seeing where this project takes me. I hope that you take a few minutes to check out the show notes and see some of the photographs of what I've found in my own backyard and that it can inspire you. Following this practice has really triggered much more curiosity in me as well. I have so many ideas for other projects I can do in the future. I hope this episode has given you some ideas as well. Just get out there and start exploring. Even if it's just a few minutes for a few days, I'm sure you'll start to see things that you never realized were there before. And before I go, I wanted to give you a little bit of an insight into some of the upcoming interviews. I have one interview with an entomologist who started an outreach campaign that's made insects interesting to kids and adults alike. He has a fascinating story and plenty of ideas as to how to engage the public. I have another episode upcoming about bioblitzes and how bioblitzes can be a great way to get kids, scouting troops, hikers, anyone interesting in nature out and discovering new things. A bioblitz really helps people piece together the ecology of an area. This is an important step to getting people to understand the interconnectedness of everything. And with that understanding comes more action. Take care and stay well. We live in a world where sound bites dominate and true understanding is shrinking. Nature's Archive podcast digs a little bit deeper, hoping to help the world understand nature just a little bit more. I hope that this podcast has planted a seed of interest that will grow into something special for you. I record, produce, edit, and publish a show by myself as a personal passion. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and then please turn around and share this episode with a friend or a family member that you think might like it. I'm not asking for money or donations, just a gift of sharing. Thanks for your support. You can also follow me on Instagram at Nature's Archive or Facebook, also Nature's Archive. In addition to sharing information about podcasts at those locations, I also share some of my photography and some short explanations of what I'm seeing. Lastly, if you have any suggestions for guests or topics for me to cover, please email me at naturesarchivepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you.